It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Let Me Tell You podcast from the Irish Examiner. In this podcast we are looking at some of the most dramatic events in recent Irish political history from the unique perspective of one of the key players. With the 50th anniversary of Ireland's entry into Europe upon us, we want to look at today are the events surrounding the 2012 Euro crisis and the secret plans to reprint the Irish currency, the punt. With me here today to discuss his pivotal role in that episode is former Labour Party leader and then Minister for Public Expenditure Reform and of course current Wexford TD, Brendan Howland. You're very welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. Now before we go uh, into the, the, the heart of the matter, we have a small clip here to sort of set the scene for yourselves and our listeners as well. So, well, Let's begin this afternoon with the crisis in the Eurozone. President Obama today meeting with members of the European Union here in Washington. The meeting comes at a time in which many see the Eurozone as being on life support after economic collapse seems to be spreading. Now we've already seen Greece, Portugal and Ireland bailed out, but now the Eurozone's third and fourth largest economies, Italy and Spain, are also under threat. Today's meeting is seen by some as a last ditch attempt to save the Eurozone, with even some top experts predicting the Eurozone has just 10 days left to live if a major solution is not found by its next meeting on December 9th. Brendan Helen, that's a clip from American TV from Midway in 2011. You took office in March 2011 with a huge majority with Fine Gael. From, from your recollection, what were the warnings that you were being given or what was the sense of how deep the crisis was when you took office at that time? Well, we knew the crisis was very, very deep. The most profound economic challenge the country had faced probably since independence. Um, I suppose it started in 2008 um, Ireland was the first Eurozone country to go into a recession and things catapulted very quickly. We had mass unemployment, 80,000 additional people unemployed within a year. And then I suppose things crystallised in 2010 when basically the then uh, government fell apart. And I suppose politically that's why you know, we had to do a lot of thinking. It was much easier for us to walk away at that stage. Uh, but we went into government knowing that we really probably needed the strength of the two largest parties in the Dáil working together yeah. to drag Ireland out of what we were facing into. And not only was there, as you've well articulated there, the Irish domestic problem, but there was obviously the Euro-wide yeah. crisis. Just talk to me about what sounds were you getting about that wider crisis in your initial days and after taking office? Yeah, well, it, we thought things were terribly, terribly, terribly bad, mm. uh, but things got immeasurably worse because what... I suppose people saw as an Irish crisis for Europe 
became a European crisis for Ireland mm. uh, in terms of uh, the potential impact of the collapse of one of the m m um, major currencies, the withdrawal of a country, uh, the one that most came into focus in 2012 was Italy. Italy yeah. And it was crystal clear to us if Italy withdrew um, from the euro, the euro itself might well implode. Mm. And that was one of the most tense periods uh, in the summer of 2012 when we had to prepare ourselves for that potential happening. It was the most difficult period, as I say, since independence in my mm. judgment, uh, because we genuinely, um, day to day, didn't know whether Ireland economically could survive. We were fighting on so many fronts at that, uh, at that time. And at the same time, uh, we, were, we weren't dealing with shrinking violets uh, in the Troika who were doing a monthly accounting, and we had to be there to ensure that the targets we had agreed with them mm. would be set, at the same time trying to constantly adjust the targets to make it more uh, palatable. And in terms of, uh, I mean, the, the focus of this podcast really is, mm. is, is around the currency and around sure. um, the, 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 that, that sort of, that, that sort of uh, series of events. And my, my, again, going back on my notes, I get the sense that from the summer of 2011 that there were teams between the Department of Finance, Public Expenditure Reform mm. as one entity and the Central Bank were beginning to have discussions around like this is now a viable possibility. You know, scenario testing was beginning to happen. You might just talk us through from your perspective what, what were those discussions and, and who was involved at that stage? Well, uh, uh, all the discussions happened at the EMC. Uh, the Economic Management Council was the pivotal en engine. The, it just, was the War Cabinet. And just so we can explain, this was yeah. the four-man inner yeah. cabinet between yourself, Enda Kenny, Michael Noonan and Eamon Gilmore. Yeah, and key um, officials, obviously, the Secretary-General to the Government, each of our Secretaries-General and a new uh, Secretary facilitating the work of the EMC itself. Mm. Um, so they were, th that was essentially the war cabinet that was trying to deal with these things, um, crisis by crisis, uh, and defuse as many bombs as we could. It was clear uh, from us that, um, as I said, things got worse very quickly after we entered government mm. because of external factors, um, contagion in, in, in the banks, um, the, the, the danger that uh, either Spain or Italy or both could topple, uh, could topple mm. and bring everybody down. Uh, and that, that concern grew uh, right through 2012, and I suppose culminated in uh, the summer of 2012, when we actually uh, had to put into place some strategic uh, decisions, mm. because this thing could happen very quickly. Mm. And, um, you know, I think there were some guffaws when... Um, it, when Enda Kenny said likely at one stage that... We have a clip on this. Where we're oh, you? this is, you might play the second clip here, Paul. But, uh... The governor of the central bank in Ireland said to me, it looks like this weekend, this is a few years ago, you will have to put the army around the banks and around the ATM machines and introduce capital controls like they had in Cyprus. So we pulled back from that brink. As you say, there were gas, and I yeah. remember a week-long sort of investigation as did that actually happen? Was it said? Was it not said? Like, again, I didn't, not to stop you in, in mid-track, mm. continue what you were... No, I mean, saying. that was the nature of the conversation. You see, looking back from, from the shoreline, uh, you know, once you've sa sailed the vessel into safe harbour, uh, these things look so bizarre, so mm. strange. Um, but 
that was an extraordinary time. We obviously had to be very restricted in the number of people who could be aware that we were planning for, for the return of the punt. Mm. Um, I mean, it became black humour. I mean, whose face would we put on the pound, the new Irish pound that we would have to do? How long would we take to print? Mm. Uh, and we actually had practical presentations in terms of, uh, of how long would it take to print notes, how long would it uh, take to, to print coins, how long would we have to close the banks, how would people access um, credit for the period of time. Um, Did it have his name? Because I'm often wondering, like, you know, these oh, have Operation Mongoose or Operation... No, no, that, I don't... I, don't uh, I mean, some of the operations we had, for example, the uh, liquidation of the IRC yeah, yeah. was... Um, uh, Operation Red or Pro Project Red, Pro yeah. uh, and somehow near the very end, it was always Project Red, but sometime near the very end it became Project Dawn at the very end. Yes. But this, because we were so petrified of this leaking out, but this, I don't recall this having a name, mm. um, but I do recall, um, uh, you know, we had to do things like bring in um, the Secretary General of my department to, to see if we were going to procure paper to print money without obviously going through public procurement, and secondly, um, without alerting people, why is the Irish government buying an awful lot of paper for currency? Yeah. Um, so all these things had to be, uh, had to be planned for, um, and it, it was a really, really challenging time because nobody knew what the consequences of a collapsed euro would be. I mean, the, the shock waves of the collapse of the, the second largest currency in the, in the world at the time mm. wouldn't be confined to Europe. Yeah. It would be an earthquake across the globe. Uh, I, I, and we had to try and see how in that context. And I remember direct contact being made from the Sycamore Room uh, to um, the, the, the financial uh, treasury in, in, in Washington, as well as with the ECB, to try and take this incrementally, how we would manage it and how, would, how, how we would contain mm. as best we could uh, the fallout from it. Now, so, all of this without anything leaking out, because as soon as you whisper currency collapse, mm. you actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and again, because it was interesting, because I remember, I think I wrote, I, uh, like, people like Sean Fleming, you know, would have put down parliamentary questions mm. at the time. I'm sure there were media queries. It did become a bit of an open, I won't say secret, but it was certainly became an open topic of discussion around the the, you know, the chattering classes in Dublin. Did, did at any point did you fear that this was getting out, that there was a kind of a, it was kind of getting to the point where this is just now almost, it's not sustainable to continue on in, in, in the denials, I suppose, as No, I mean, the bottom line is that um, any economist would look at what was happening across the Eurozone and there was endless speculation about yeah. the viability of various economies at the time. So that was a daily um, narrative mm. and that, that couldn't be escaped. Um, we just had to present ourselves as confidently as we could, but at the same time prepare for the worst. Um, you, you know, even in the midst of this, we didn't expect it to actually happen, yeah. but we knew we had to prepare for it for because it, okay. so many unimaginable things mm. had happened in the previous four years. Can I ask you a frank question? Because sure. again, when you're obviously trying to protect something as delicate and mm. sensitive as this, do you agree amongst yourselves that there is a position or a line up to which you're prepared, I won't say lie, but certainly not tell the truth in relation to this in terms of containment, or was there just a point saying, if we start getting direct queries on this, we'll have to fess up, or did those discussions even take place? No, those discussions didn't take place because, I mean, in essence, everybody knew who could look at the economy and there was endless, as I say, commentators mm. uh, that this was a possibility. 
Um, the only thing we didn't want to go out is that we were actively preparing for uh, reacting to such a possibility. Mm. And I don't recall anybody asking me the direct question, well, is there uh, a law drafted? Um, do you have a design for money? Um, what mm. are you going to do um, in terms of securing credit, protecting mm. deposits and so on in those eventualities? But they were the sort of things we were preparing for. And speaking of which, you raised the issue of a you know, new face on the punt. Did you actually ever decide as to who the new face no, on the punt no, would be? No, like? I mean, I think the, the, the black humour was that we'd, we'd have to put Michael Dees. Michael Dees. <laughs> Um, but in, in terms of those negotiations, because my understanding is what Anne Nolan, who was the head of the banking division, yes. would have been the main liaison between the department and the central bank. Am I right on that? Yes. Yes. So, and again, that she would have attended yeah. the EMC as well. Okay. As well and, as the secretary general of the department. Of and there would have been essentially a war room established. I don't know. But but at its height, at the at the I suppose the most tense moment, and we're supposed into 2012 at this stage. I mean, how frequently were you discussing this? How frequently were you meeting on this? Or how much oxygen and time was this issue taking up? Um, we were meeting every week. The EMC met every Wednesday afternoon, mm. um, but we had so many other things to be dealing with. Yeah. Um, this this wasn't a, a, you know a constant um, issue that we we discussed very frequently. Um, I remember um, one full meeting when it was very precarious that we we did discuss it, and then we we'd reference it uh, until such time as it was it it disappeared off the horizon. Mm. We were aware from. The, the previous confrontation we had with the European Central Bank in relation to buying in the bondholders mm. early on in our administration, when Trichet, in a conversation with, um, with Michael Noonan, made it clear that it, the ECB wouldn't tolerate what the government had determined would do, and what we had committed in, in advance of the election to do, yeah. which was burn the senior bondholders. That would be worth about three billion euros uh, at the time, three and a half billion or thereabouts. And um, it was agreed by government. The doll was, in, was about to be informed of it. The speaking note was done. I had actually briefed the Parliamentary Labour Party and walked over to the doll chamber. Yeah. Michael Noonan came in late, if you, you recall. I remember it well, yeah, I remember well. And he had four pages, I think it was four pages, and he, he was so flustered he read them out in the wrong order, but nobody noticed it. Um, but um, in essence, um, the the, liquid, the liquidity that we were dependent on to sustain our currency um, was threatened, mm. um, and we, uh, we we just couldn't uh, afford to take that risk at that stage. Mm. And I say this because that obviously conditioned us in relation to the uh, the next decisions we had to make. Yeah. Uh, and if you think that that was an idle uh, threat from the ECB, have a look at what happened to Greece. Greece, yeah, no, no, and and and, and I suppose the. The natural kind of follow-on from that is that when you're in these very heavy discussions and you're at the point of it, you know, getting tense, and you, you talked about getting very close to actioning a plan, what would like had you actioned that plan? What would it actually have looked like? What would you ha what would have happened had you pressed the button on it? We don't know. I suppose um, we would have had to close the banks temporarily, and the debate was, could we get away with closing for three days? Or would it have to be longer? Mm. And it probably would have had to have been longer. Um, how would we stop a panic? Um, the idea of having some sort of security in the banks to stop a run, people yeah. busy, physically, as happened in Greece subsequently, mm. queuing up outside, banging on the doors, yeah. um, looking for their money. And of course, the euro, which was their currency, was, would no longer be available. And we would have had to fix a new rate yeah. for our free-floating pound, and then it would have to find its own value mm. in an international market. 
uh, that wouldn't have been a very um, happy um, set of circumstances, mm. as you can imagine. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, I mean, you like, say... Was what, there a contingency even, say, for using digital transactions? Like, would you have used your bank card as opposed to the currency? Um, some of my sources in the bank have said that, you know, there would have been some... There may have been a case where you could have had the euro currency, but with some form of a sticker on it, or there may have been other yeah, options virtu- on the table. Virtual euro and all yeah. these things. Um, I happen. I remember being in Moscow when the ruble collapsed, mm. and I was staying in a hotel, and suddenly um, they they said that everything is now no longer priced in rubles; it's priced in units of currency. But nobody knew what the value of units of currency. So you went in to order your dinner, and it was 35 units, units of, of currency. currency. No, until you paid for it at the end, you didn't know what you were paying for, uh, or how much it was. Mm. So that's when your currency disappears. That's the sort of surreal territory that you disappear mm. into. Did the government act throughout that period? Were, were you and Fine Gael at one, at one in relation to that? Was it a kind of a unified approach or were there disagreements or arguments as to the approach in relation to this or was the situation just so stark that... No, there was no... I mean, if, if literally the, the euro collapsed, which is something we had no control over, yeah. uh, we had to have a contingency plan for that. And a contingency plan required us to have our own currency of yeah. some description. Mm. So, I mean, that wasn't a point of debate. That was a point of necessity. Uh, and we had to prepare... Uh, all the um, extraordinariness mm. that that, that in, 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 in involved. Do you know at any point was the new currency even printed? Did you see no. any of the new currency no. or any of that kind of stuff? No, no. we never we never got to that never stage at stage. all. Okay. Not even in design, design. terms. Okay. No. And in terms of the, um, I suppose the plan that would have been exercised, would you have waited, would it have been an Irish call to tr- pull the trigger or would it say it been a call from Brussels or Frankfurt to make the, in terms of pulling the trigger ultimately? Well, we'd have to, we, we were coordinating both with Frankfurt, um, with other European partners uh, and with, um, uh, with the United States. Mm. Um, but, I mean, as we discovered again and again, um, in an absolute and complete crisis, Quite often you're on your own. Mm. Now, obviously salvation came in the form of Mario Draghi when he <laughs> took over the ECB, and we have a clip of Super Mario as he was yes. dermed, and let's, let's take a quick listen. In July 2012, the European Central Bank's then-president Mario Draghi gave a speech that is now credited with saving the euro. The ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro. 
And believe me, it will be enough. Greece was in the middle of a debt crisis and economic instability was spreading to other parts of the Eurozone. The ECB, the central bank for the countries that have adopted the euro, had to act. From an Irish perspective, Brendan Howland, what impact did that policy change from Mario Draghi have? And was that the key changer or the key matter or ch- you know, event that, that took that risk of a euro collapse off the table? In my judgment, yes. I think that in terms of a personnel change, uh, nothing was more valuable and more important than the replacement of appreciated by Draghi. Mm. And I presume, were there, I, I dare say, were there champagnes popped in, in Dublin <coughs> at, at that eventuality? Or? We were too exhausted. <laughs> too, exhausted. <laughs> too exhausted and too frazzled. I do remember, literally, mm. you know, just to clear your head, walking down, um, out of Merrion Street and walking down Baggett Street and looking at people going around their normal business and saying, what are they doing? Be normal. They yeah, only yeah. knew how close we are to ruination. Yeah, yeah. And... <clears throat> Even afterwards, even now, looking back, it, it almost seems surreal how close we came to complete peril. Mm. Uh, and <clears throat> I find that still, in judging actions of that period, uh, as if we were in normal circumstances as opposed to uh, literally fighting a war. Mm. Given <clears throat> what you said in terms of the, the lack of realisation by the Irish public as to what actually happened or how close we was it a mistake then from a communications perspective not to articulate that more clearly at the time? That's a very, very good question that I've thought about a lot. Uh, And I think the answer is probably yes. You see, we had, I suppose, three different objectives. One, we had to do the best we can to fix things. Mm. Two, we had to keep the confidence of external investors that we were going to succeed, Mm. which was critical. Confidence was critical. And the third thing, we had to keep some level of morale in the Irish public to stay with the programme and to stay with us um, because a disintegration of public support um, would have been ruinous for the state as well. So if you ask me just in terms of the entire period of government, um, from a Labour Party perspective, I think we, in, we internalised too much of the difficulties, uh, too much of the sometimes conflict we had with Fine Gael. Mm. Uh, we didn't articulate that to people. I think the Greens have done much better since, in much calmer times, in saying, actually, that's not our point of view, this is our point of view. Mm. Uh, but we were so petrified that internal dissent in government that became publicly known would undermine the whole re- reconstruction strategy and undermine people investor, investors' confidence mm-hmm. uh, in Ireland, Inc., that w- we allowed all of that to be internalised, which put enormous strains on us in in the system, mm. um, but I think probably did help the journey to salvation, if you want to put it that way, yeah. but at great political cost to us. Dare I say, did the scars of 1982 to 1987 loom large in the thinking of, of, of some of you in terms of the, the, that very difficult relationship between Fine Gael and, Fianna, or Fianna Gael and Labour on the economy under mm. Garrison and Dick Spring? Um, well, I obviously was very peripheral around, oh, well, I know, but around the place in, in, in that period, yeah. but yes. Um, I actually think that, and certainly I would advise any uh, future Labour involved in government to be much more upfront and clear about what we're doing, uh, about the, differ- the differences or difficulties we're having, even if it is um, a, a point of difficulty for the government, um, it, to be clear about that um, so that 
you know, when I, I remember in, in the 90s, when the government fell apart in 94, mm. um, it came as a complete shock to ourselves, you know, our own parties as well, mm. because we hadn't prepared people for the ongoing difficulties that the, the, two, the two parties were having at that stage. So more external dialogue um, with the people uh, and to bring as many people with you as you can. Mm. Now that is easier said than done in, in the current age of social media because where everything is reduced to a soundbite and um, nothing is contextualised. Mm. Looking back at that period, I mean, obviously, I, I vividly remember Tommy Bruin and others in O'Reilly Hall and UCD, uh, you know, before you went into government saying, this is going to, we're going to be hammered for this and mm. this is not the right thing to do. Do you have any personal regrets about going into government in 2011? Well, I negotiated, uh, I led the negotiations for the programme for government uh, and we were briefed, obviously, during that process by the central bank, by the Department of Finance at the time, um, by external actors like uh, the Troika. Uh, and we knew what was ahead of us, mm -hmm. but we also knew what the consequences of not taking on that challenge would be. Um, I mean, I know talking to Eamon, and I've talked to Eamon about this subsequently, uh, it is something certainly he contemplated, because I think that had we not gone in, um, Fine Gael would have been in government, would certainly have been, they would have implemented their strategy, which was uh, a much tougher ratio of cuts mm -hmm. to income tax rise, or to tax rises than ours was. Uh, on balance over our five years in government, the ratio was about 50-50, that is, uh, tax rises um, mm. to, to, service to, okay. to service cuts. They wanted a ratio of three to one, mm -hmm. and Leo, of course, wanted famously four to one, uh, I think that would have been unbearable for the Irish people. I don't think that government would have lasted. And we probably would have gained hugely in a subsequent election, mm -hmm. but we then would have been in government with a much weaker and worse economy because things would have deteriorated further. So you can't rewrite history. And from a political point of view, you, you know, people say, oh, the Labour Party, you know, went in and didn't do this or didn't do that. I am proud of the role we played. Uh, we didn't do everything right, God mm -hmm. knows we didn't. And if you were fighting a war and making um, decisions in real time every day uh, with the consequences saying, if you don't do that now, this is gonna happen mm. negatively, of course you're gonna make mistakes too. But by and large, you know, the fact that our economy was in a position to um, support our people during COVID is a testament to the recovery mm. that we put in train in our period in government. One of the difficult decisions that your party took was changing leader in the middle of the fight. Is that something that was right to have happened or do you think that was a mistake? Oh, I don't think it was right that it happened. Um, Eamon in his book set out what happened. I mean, it happened as a consequence of the local and European elections. That's right, yeah. Um, we expected a bad result. Um, I actually was the one that was tasked with going on, on uh, RTE radio uh, the morning after the election, the minute that the exit poll was to be announced. And I have to say, I think it was 7% was the figure given. And that was below any of our expectations. Mm. And I knew we had a, a great difficulty. Um, I had spoken on the day of the election. Uh, Eamon had rung me and asked me to meet him. And I, I came to Dublin, left my own constituency that day. And we discussed 
what we would do, and one of the things that Eamon had agreed to do is that he would leave the Department of Foreign Affairs, take a more domestic role and a hands-on role uh, on it. Although he was playing a blinder in terms of our economic development and recovery uh, in his role as Minister of Foreign Affairs. But we knew that we were now faced with an existential threat as a party. Yeah. Uh, but things had moved very quickly, mm. and he felt by Sunday that he should resign. And he did resign on the Monday. Mm. Do you think the fact that I think it was seven or eight of your, I think maybe younger parliamentary party colleagues had gathered with a view to, and maybe it was a kind of a, you know, what are we doing here, guys, type of thing. Mm. But there is a perception that they were there in a bit to oust Eamon Gilmore from his position. Is that your sense of that of what that meeting was about, or do you think is, that an, unfair, is that an unfair? Uh, I was meeting with Eamon um, and Pat Rabbit um, when I got a phone call saying that this meeting was happening, mm. uh, and I sought to find out where it was happening and to ring into it. And it was simply people who just were panicking. It, it, they hadn't any strategy, yeah. and most of them regretted um, being there subsequently. Um, that's the truth of it. It was just, they obviously were concerned about the future of our party, and they were right to be concerned about the future of the party. Um, but my own judgment on it, I can say honestly, I, I think that um, had we... Um, could he have? Could he have say if he'd batten in the hatches for about forty-eight hours? Could you reckon him and Gilmore could have stayed on? Yes, I do. That'd be my judgment on yeah. it. Did you or did you advise him on that, or, uh, or was it, no. were events moving too fast? At that events stage? were moving too fast. Mm. Once things were going in, uh, you know, we things were too precarious generally for us to have an internal political battle, mm. and uh, Eamon knew that immediately. His successor as Tawnish is someone who is somewhat seen as a divisive member or figure in your party. Were her actions at that time helpful in, in, that, in that period? Well, I mean, uh, Joan was a very good colleague, worked assiduously in the Department of Social Protection to protect, by God, she defended mm. um, social welfare recipients uh, to the annoyance of Fine Gael, I have to tell you, who felt that, um, and blame me as well for being... Um, too supportive of um, my colleague minister in social protection mm. uh, and not um, generous enough to, to others. Okay, but let's cut to it. She was often seen as being, you know, stirring up trouble for Eamon while he was out of the country, often seen as kind of articulating anti-leadership type because she didn't get your job in the Department for Public Expenditure Reform. I suppose from your inside role, is that an unfair portrayal of John Burton? Yes. Very good. <laughs> in terms of the, the longer legacy for the Labour Party, let's just take a pause on that one. Um, in terms of the longer legacy of the Labour Party, I mean, is there a way back for the Labour Party? Obviously, we see poll rating, you know, consisting now below 3% or, or 5%, I should say. Um, and it is the oldest party in, in the history of the country and all the rest of it. You know, can it see brighter days again or is it terminally in trouble? <laughs> well, we've been terminally in trouble uh, since our inception. Um, people have written us off more times than I've had hot dinners. Mm. I was elected, uh, I'm very glad to, to tell your listeners that um, I'm 40 years in the Iraq this now. Congratulations. <laughs> Today? Uh, this week. <laughs> yeah. This week. Um, I was four years in the Senate and 36 years in the Dáil. And when I was elected in 87, our opinion poll rating was 4.6%. Not our opinion poll rating. Our actual poll rating mm. was 4.5%. Um, and people had written us off. Uh, within four years of that, uh, we had elected Mary Robinson president. And two years after that, uh, we had 33 Dáil deputies led by Dick Spring. Mm. Um, the, the, the thing I've learned in my 
long-term perspective on politics in Ireland is that people making long-term judgments on the basis of today's reality virtually never prove to be the case. Mm. I mean, if you just look at the rise of Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin in the last local elections did miserably, miserably. Um, a few months after the last local elections in, in 2019, we had four by-elections, which mm -hmm. they did their normal average. They won one. In my constituency, we had a by-election. The candidate got 4,000 votes. Four months later, in February, mm -hmm. the same candidate, who had lost his council seat less than a year earlier, lost his county council seat, got 18,000 first preference votes. Mm -hmm. So I had people telling me in the summer of 2019 that Sinn Féin were a washed-up entity. Um, see, fortunes change and events happen. And the thing that um, the Labour Party has is deep roots in, in, in communities mm. and a long history of serving this country. Now, uh, you know, nowadays it, it almost is a liability to have served in government, not only in Ireland, across Europe and across the world, mm. to have actually served in government because people want um, the promise of something fundamentally different uh, that you, they can have uh, without restriction. Um, and I think people also look to a party of integrity. Well, we could talk about that for another day that's and a half. Another, that's listen, another discussion. That is, but listen, that's it for now. My thanks to Brendan Howland for joining us on his 40th anniversary of, of being in the Dáil. <laughs> this podcast was produced by Paul Hossard and myself, Tanya McConnell. To you, the listener, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. Uh, join us next time for another episode of Let Me Tell You. Bye-bye for now. 